0: Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I chat with comedian Conchetta Caristo. Conchetta talks about getting into comedy and her teenage years of domestic violence where she went to a woman's refuge for a couple of months to escape and then fled to Perth. Then later on, Lifeguard Whippet joins me in the shack for Beach Banner and I go to the mailbag to answer questions from the fans. Now let's have a listen to my chat with Conchetta. Conchetta. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, we've got Conchetta Caristo, uh, who is a comedian, and but there is a background story on on uh, how we met years ago. So <laughs> welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Opho. I'm so excited. This is truly a career highlight for me.
0: We'll we'll touch on your uh, your life and, and what you're doing now as a comedian, but we'll start back and go way back, mm-hmm. which I didn't realize until we uh, we did a little sort of gig together a while ago, but. Uh, I think it was Maxie and I came to your school at yep. Santa Sabina College. Do you remember the, the school? Oh, I remember that. I remember uh, <laughs> Maxie and I did a lot around that yeah. period. And that's well, what well, we're probably going back what eight, ten years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, Maybe 2009,
1: 2010, yeah. Maybe two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, possibly. I'm still yeah. trying to pin down the exact year, but I'll remember it. Like it was yesterday, because I remember getting Maxie's signature. And I remember he did it with two eyes. It was like really yeah, yeah, yeah. cool <laughs> on a scrap of paper. And I think I still have it somewhere. It must be but, so thin. That was
0: probably the school when uh, there's there a whole lot of girls in there. there oh, and, yeah. And uh, they're all yelling out the Maxie. And I sort of <laughs> tapped him on the I tapped him on shirt and said, mate, so the old bloke still got it. And that, <laughs> the problem was that it wasn't really. They're all yelling for Maxie. All you oh, girls yeah. were yelling for Maxie. <laughs> because it sort of hit home when I think the. Uh, Some of the girls came up and said, my mum loves you. (laughs) And (laughs) then... That put into perspective where I was at.
1: <laughs> if the mums were here, they would be screaming for you, Hopper, but you were with a bunch of high school, middle school girls who were obsessed with the little blonde guy from that scene.
0: <laughs> So how was that? Can you remember back when we turned up? I think we were doing some surf safety talk. And yeah, yeah, the yeah. Girls and what was that like? So
1: I am pretty sure I remember Santa Fest was a, um, a thing where it was fundraising for like whatever the charity was and um, – um, you would try and get special guests and i remember there was like we once like and to pull guests as a school i don't know who's doing it but like it would have been so interesting to see who you can pull and i remember at, at the time there were the stars of like Maybe like not so you think you can dance, but remember those like talent shows, like yep. those little dance it was probably, groups.
0: Um, yeah, was it Idol? Idols, yeah. Yeah, Idol time? might Australian have been Idol happening. Idol and a few of those. Yeah. A few of
1: those kind of people, and then obviously the Bondi Rescue Boys. I mean, you were huge. You're still huge. I think that would have been like a huge get for the school. Everyone <laughs> knows who you guys are, and it was just like so. Just would have been mania, and that's yep. why I'm trying to see. I'm still trying to find if they're is a photo of you with any of the school leaders. If even I'm in a photo, that would be like worth a million (laughs) dollars. So I've got to look through my old school yearbooks and hopefully find um, that amazing piece in time.
0: I'm glad you put that million dollars on this. So any, anyone <laughs> yeah. out there has got a photo of me. We could be worth a million.
1: That's right. Imagine it signed. I mean, then it's purely priceless.
0: <laughs> well, then from there you left school and then uh, you obviously went through a, a period where you went to uni. But mm. tell us about that. You so hated uni? Oh, my God, yes.
1: So I think I loved school, Hopper. Like I loved it because I loved being I was always like a school leader I loved being with people I loved making them laugh I loved making school fun and then I remember towards the HSC years the fun really dropped off it became a lot more pressure both from like kind of the school and definitely my my parents and that whole culture of like needing to just study 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 and it sort of like broke me and what we'll obviously get into but my dad was kind of violent and like a very strict kind of controlling father and so my life pretty much was shaped by him and then in terms of going to uni which is like you know you go to uni there's no option there's no like gap year there's no like doing anything else so in terms of picking what I was going to do at uni it was always going to be like business skewed I didn't get high enough to do law that wasn't happening but like what's the next kind of proper thing to do with something in business and so I remember with my ITA like the highest thing I could do is economics yep. and god I couldn't tell you how little I knew or cared I didn't study <laughs> economics at school I mean I did commerce in U 10 and then I went to uni at UCID and I remember like it quickly dropping off and you know just not finding it interesting and not really learning and not really putting in the time to study and like kind of crumbling under the pressure but not really showing it. I yeah. couldn't, like, tell my dad, like, I hate this. Like, yeah. I want to do something else. There was just really no option. So I spent yeah. a lot of uni hopper, um playing pool with friends <laughs> and, like, making <laughs> friends and, like, eventually skipping classes and stuff. Yeah. And then, yeah, that was well,
0: – that must have played a toll on your mental health, though, because you, yeah. you, you sort of didn't want to do it, but because of your father b- pushing for that – Yeah. So tell us a bit about that because a a lot of people that listen would be in the same boat, especially a lot of Mm. young people like yourself that don't know how to handle it, don't know how to deal with it, Mm -hmm. and now you've been through it. Give us a little bit of an insight on on how you felt and then how you sort of dealt with that.
1: Totally. I feel like it's a very relatable thing for ethnic kids, for people who grow up, like my background's Italian, and just in the culture of that was – Doing what your parents said. I just remember like comparing myself to like the really Aussie kids, and it was just like it it felt like they had more freedoms, and like it felt very different. I was like, oh, I have to do kind of what my family wants me to do. I really do not have an option. There's no one higher than my family. I still. The other day, I ran into my old drama teacher. Again, we're talking like ten years ago, and I said to him, "Do you remember when we sat in my parent teacher interview?" and you were, like, saying how great I was at drama and I'm so yep. funny and I absolutely must pick drama for years 11 and 12. And my father sat there and was like, there's no way yep. Conchetta is picking drama yep. for her HSC. Do you know how that scales? At what? How? Wh- how is she going to get into drama? And he just, like, shat all over <laughs> him. And he was like, yeah, I absolutely remember that. But, yeah, in terms of mental health, it was like, oh, it sucked because it felt like you truly do not have any autonomy, kind of, over what you want to do and yeah. what you like and that isn't really validated. Mm. But as a kid, again, like there's no one higher than my father, than my parents, so I just thought I just have to make this work. Yeah. I just thought that that's what my life would be. I would just have to kind of mould myself to do these things and and so that is hard and it was clearly not working if I wasn't yeah. – I was lying to my father being like, yeah, I learnt um, this about economics when I was still in week one of yeah. like – supply and demand that's yeah, all yeah, I yeah. knew um <laughs> and so I think now through everything that I've been through coming out of it to me there's I feel I really um empathize with people who have to like grow up and and have to live life through that but to me there's there has to be the choice of like living for yourself yep. I, I know it can be so hard because your family is everything there's such a big culture and like I think families of like not letting your family down but to me, like if I had to just be something that I wasn't meant to be, like I could, I just can't do that. Right. It just doesn't fulfill you. And it, I hope there's a way that's less dramatic as me of like yep. having to run away and all this stuff yep. we'll get into, of getting to be your authentic self and also being honest with your parents about that kind of stuff. But it's hard. All yep. I can say is that it's very hard.
0: Yep. So there must have been then came a breaking point, and yep. and you you know. You were saying that uh, your mom and your sister and that did go and get away mm-hmm. and get a ref- uh, refuge,
1: refuge. Yeah. So yeah,
0: tell us. From, yeah. So that was the breaking point. Oh
1: yeah. Um. So yeah. So just growing up in that household, like both a loving father, but also, uh, you know, and all my needs were met. We're like a middle class family. There's mm. no way I'm like stricken by poverty or any of those other horrible things that can sometimes. Yeah go in hand in hand with domestic violence, it was having all of that, like I'm at a good school, whatever, but the undercurrent is I'm like living under this like yeah. crazy controlling rule. But again, I never thought – I just thought that's how my life is going to be forever. And I've since learned now that it's not because I was like stupid that I was like there's no one above my dad. I've learned that that's a real thing called coercive control, which is like what goes along with domestic violence is the like – the talk that goes along with it, how they – Mold you since I was a Mm. kid to be like, this is it. You don't tell anyone. There's no one higher than me. So, of course, that's just what I thought. And the actual catalyst for why we did get out was my sister, my younger sister, who's four years younger than me. She was like, I don't know, in year nine or something, maybe even younger. She had like packed her bag one day, going to school, like as if she wasn't going to come back, like she was going to run away. And I think my mom maybe pressed her or something, dropping her off at school. And she broke down and was like, I can't do this anymore. Mm. I was going to run away. I I can't live like this anymore. And for mom, that was like, oh, my God, if I'm going to lose my daughter, then we need to do something now. Mm. And so then very quickly after that, they, like, pitched it to me. They were like, (laughs) hey, we are thinking what if we got out of here? And I remember that, like, blew the lid off my entire life. I was like... I didn't even know that was possible. Wow. But if you're saying, let's do it, let's fucking do <laughs> it. <laughs> um, and so so ultimately, like, as you said, like, I'm failing uni, but I'm pretending that I'm not. I'm, like, f- forging my – I had no – like, I remember final exams were coming up, Popo, and I have no idea how I would have gotten through there. But this came just at the right time, that for us to leave, yeah. I – could leave all of that. But I'm just telling you, we were it would be like heading towards the Titanic. Like clearly I was losing the reins on propping up this life of living for someone else. So it
0: was like a you basically were living a fake life over here.
1: Absolute life. (laughs) Yeah.
0: To what, you know, people actually probably thought the fake life was Mm -hmm. you, but it really wasn't.
1: No. Absolutely. Like I'm lying to everyone that I'm like normal, happy, fine, and can handle doing this degree and everything. And so I just remember being so relieved knowing that I could just leave because I didn't know how to face my dad and all Mm. that stuff of Mm. everything really crashing down on me. So then, yeah, it took uh, months of planning, meticulous. Like mum was speaking to, mum called a DV hotline. I think it was 1-800-RESPECT and was put in touch with someone who like got to understand the sort of severity of this DV situation because we're talking like, 20 years like just like our whole lives sometimes you know it can be quite short periods or like on and off on and off this was just consistent for a really long time and so Mum speaking to that being the adult and all this and we're doing little things of like slowly packing stuff but making it not look too obvious and then I remember on October 30th in 2013 that we left Mm -hmm. like one morning as if we were going to school but we were packing the car and didn't look back we had yeah. to like go to this refuge smashed our phones and that was the beginning right. of like a huge catalyst yeah, in my yeah, life yeah geez
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. that must have been also tough for your mum though too because I mean she's got two young kids mm. and then have to to break away and and, and do that as well and, and the, the yeah. plan up to that point so yeah you know, she I, must have been strong in in one way yeah and probably quite frightened in another
1: absolutely now with my like with a bit more age and maturity and looking back on it, I am in true awe of my mum because I didn't realise literally all the things she was juggling, of juggling like running her own business with the man who is like her controller and abuser at the same time, raising two young kids, planning secretly how to run away. And this running away took so many like, just out of luck if things had happened. I remember her telling me she accidentally butt-dialed my dad when she was, like, going to the bank to, like, talk about bank stuff and it's just these little moments, like something out of a movie that if one little hitch happened and the day we left, it's also like something out of a movie. If one little thing didn't work, if he woke up early that morning, there's a hundred different ways this could have gone Mm. where we didn't get out. So it's like juggling all of that and being the adult in this and having to do the research and... I just am so grateful to my mom because it took – and, you know, and I think when people think about, like, why didn't you leave and thinking that she's weak, I think there's a strength in that, like, it takes strength and courage to, like, get up every day and live through this and it's kind of about survival. In the same way of me, I'm like – to me, survival was having to mold into this person to fit this life to just keep going every day with this, like, far, You know what I mean? You yep. don't kind yep. of know until you're in it, but it takes yep. all these skills and adjustments and then, yep. yeah, to go out was a whole different yep. thing.
0: And that's what I've noticed a lot of stuff I've been doing recently with domestic violence, yeah. and I haven't had really a lot of domestic violence in my life, so mm. I haven't understood it as much as what i have now speaking to people about mm-hmm. it. And it, it does make sense that controlling is the big thing of domestic violence it's not so much i think a lot of people that don't understand think domestic violence is just hitting someone yes but but it's that control of of not letting the go do things controlling Mm -hmm. the money controlling other parts of your life and like you're saying your whole life was totally controlled yeah and you became a total different person
1: yeah Yeah. and you don't understand the reason it's even more sinister than just the violence is because we're talking about control from people you love. This Mm -hmm. is my father. Like this is someone who not only is the person that's like hurting me and I can't understand why, but also the person who is loving me and nurturing me. And that's why I think, I think people have this idea of domestic violence that it's so simple of like once someone hits you once, they're an evil villain and all you have to do is walk out the door and it's like, fine, that will never happen to me. It's not that. We're talking about complex like relationships of either a partner you love, someone you've grown up with, a parent, a Mm. carer, a sibling, like you... It's never simple. Mm. It's never simple. It's entirely complex. And the control part, the coercive control is the thing that we kind of need more awareness about of that. It's little things that build and build and build into a person's like psyche and how like I'm still unpacking what that did of living like that now for the rest of my life. Like it just shapes who you are. So that's like a great point of being like it's not simply just being hit. That's right. It's so much more than that, yeah.
0: So you you then made that move, you went yeah. to a refuge. Yeah. Obviously then your dad would have found out what was going oh, on. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine that was too good.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. No, it was horrible. And we were talking about it recently because I told you I'm writing yeah. this show coming up in a month. And I got my mum and sister together and was, like, asking them, do you remember that day? And as we're reliving it and talking about it, the mm. guilt, the anxiety, the stress is, like, coming up in us remembering those that day of just how scary it was. And even just we were saying, if I picture my father waking up one day, mm. noticing things are a bit off, going into work, mum's car's there, but mum's not there, just if I think about the dominoes falling yeah. – I feel sick, like not just guilt, but I'm like, like, that's huge. Just yeah. for your whole life to just change so vastly. And I remember by the time we're at the refuge, we started to get calls on our phones. And I think I remember that's when we were like, we need to smash our phones. Oh. We can't think about this. And so we did, we smashed our phones <laughs> just to like not think about it. But um, yeah, it was quite crazy because it felt like we were a million – Miles away, but we weren't. We mm. were actually quite close. So, like, I grew up in Strathfield and then the refuge we were in is Glebe right. or like Redfern, Glebe kind of so, yeah, area. Not far
0: away. Yeah. Not
1: that yeah. far away, but it felt like... We're, it could have
0: been another state. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit.
1: But then also we had to live these months. Like, we couldn't really go out because, you know, we've right. grown up here our yeah. whole lives. What if we run into someone yeah, yeah, and all yeah, this yeah. kind of stuff? So it was a weird... It was like living in Limbo, my right. sister said, those yeah. months in the refuge. Yeah.
0: And then you did... You ended up... F- Fleeing, you fled uh, New South Wales, yeah, and then headed over to Perth. over to Perth, yep. to
1: sunny Perth. Yep. I remember those months in the refuge. were used, I guess, to like you know get things ready to then make the permanent move. And I remember, Mum picked Perth. It kind of was beautiful because it was like it felt like the furthest point you could go yep. from yep. Sydney, kind yep. of. And also, my mum would talk about her father, who is an Italian immigrant, of him moving from like Northern Italy to, and working in Perth and just telling these like stories of how like sunny and beautiful and hot and dry it was. And so I remember like that was the plan. And so then we got all the stuff ready again, mum juggling this stuff. I still like to all her credit, so strong and brave and just doing this alone. And then we made the move in January 2014. Yeah. We flew over. I had a legally new name. My mum yeah. had a legally new name. My sister was too young to legally change it, but right. she became Jessica from Francesca. Right. Right. Quick little change so she wouldn't forget. Yeah. <laughs> she kept it quite close <laughs> to her original name, whereas I did a whole rebrand. I right. went from Conchetta to Siena. It was my favourite right. right. name. And then, yeah, then started what we thought would be the rest of our lives, like living mm-hmm. as a different, the same but different people. Yep.
0: yeah. yeah. So did the refuge have anything to do with where you were going to go, or was basically up to your mum? No, it was then,
1: like it was like a mum's autonomous right. choice, and they were just, I think, there to like support her in
0: right, um, in what uh, they want to do. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah.
1: in letting her know about services and like all those kind of things.
0: So from there, you know, you started, even though you said you hated uni, but then you started uni again, again yeah. over <laughs> in Perth.
1: <laughs> yeah, over in Perth. I guess I just thought like. Uni is what you do when you finish school. You just right. go to uni. And I thought maybe that's the problem. I wasn't doing the right thing. Do and you I,
0: think that was your, your, your dad's control still, still Maybe, there? a
1: little like, bit maybe. I think it, it would have just been like the thing of maybe just the upbringing yeah. of like outside of the father. Like wider family, that's what you do. Yeah, Everyone yeah. goes to uni. My mum went to uni. Yeah. Like even mum would have like wanted me to go to Jenny, uni yeah, just yeah. to be educated and it's yeah. not like that wild to go to uni. Yeah, so I yeah. thought maybe – I'll just do something different and I remember picking law and journalism and um, being like, here we go, this (laughs) time I'm going to get it right. And I think I liked the journalism part and the law part was like interesting, okay, but like a lot and um, same thing. I think there was still the studying at uni was a bit like hated it a little bit but I think was like still trying to make it work. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And then, um, well, how then did the – comedy come about? Was there something that triggered you or or (laughs) what happened there? That's
1: so true. Um, Well, it was actually kind of a slow, slow burn. So it's, I don't know. I think growing up, I just remember loving making people laugh. That's the only thing I remember. It wasn't like I grew up obsessing over stand-up comedy and watching specials. It was just like, I was always the funny one in the class. Mm. If we had to make an assignment, I was trying to make it funny just because I enjoyed that. And I remember when I was going for school captain, the reason I thought school captain was so cool is because they were, the last few captains were always funny. Like they were always doing funny speeches and making funny videos. And I was like, that's the ultimate. Like, so it wasn't like, I'm going to be a comedian. It was just like, why do I like doing that being funny? And so in Perth, I remember just like watching a lot of Seinfeld and crying and being like, this is what I want to do. Like, To be in a show that makes people laugh and also I'm watching the bloopers of them laughing and I'm like, this is what life's about (laughs) to (laughs) me, but not really registering. And so then the closest thing I did was just enrolling in a whopper short acting course. Um, And it was like half screen and half like theater stage stuff. And even that I wasn't like going off. I wasn't like obsessed being like, this is my calling I was so bad at acting, Hopper. I was t- yeah. truly terrible, but it was good. Well,
0: we'll, t- we'll touch on my acting soon. Oh, that's please. Not, that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as everyone will know, that's probably why I'm still a lifeguard. <laughs> but, uh, yeah,
2: so,
1: you can still have your breakout role, <laughs> you and the Hemsworths. I can see it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so from, uh, so you, you started doing a yeah. bit of uh, – just
1: trying like acting like what having the freedom to try do something was cool but then it wasn't until you know when perth living that life kind of fell apart and i moved back to sydney and was uh, re-adjusting to coming back after like running away and hiding was i did yes my third uni degree go off queen she tried three different times (laughs) and this one was like the most drama based it was like arts and business and i was doing a theater degree and remember hating the theater degree being like i don't want to be meryl street like i'm in this class and i'm like doing a blah blah and i don't care and there was a really funny guy in my class called linden and i remember he was like he must have noticed i was funny we hope and he said (laughs) you should come there's theater sports at sydney uni it's really fun just come to a jam and then, because he was so funny, and I trusted him, I and he was doing it. I went over to Sydney Uni, tried a couple of jams, and that is what I think was the start of right. like leading into being a comedy ha ha kind of girl. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, that sort of um, then then it was improv as well. That, yeah, that, that yeah, you started improv. Doing, and I suppose maybe explain to people that. Mm. Don't maybe understand what improv is
1: Yeah, improv's great And I was going to say And you were great at it, Hopper So maybe (laughs) you should start doing it too Which we'll get to the show we did But improv, if you don't know what it is is It's like impromptu kind of comedy It's building the skill of making stuff up on the fly And it's generally with other people But you can, like, do it alone And everyone kind of knows the quintessential yes and phrase Which is just about, like, if someone's like I'm a lifeguard I'm like oh my god me too and like just building a world so it's a little bit of acting and it's generally making scenes that are funny and um yeah and I loved it and it's a really great thing because it a lot of people who don't even want to do comedy for the rest of their lives do improv because it's a skill that you can use in your whole life people who come from like the business world will like do an improv class because it just gets you out of your own head it gets you used to like making mistakes and not and it not meaning so much because mm. you're making it up on the fly and the stakes. And, you know, I think even if you know what stand-up comedy is, if a comedian's like riffing, which is like saying stuff just in the moment with the crowd, in a little way that's improv of like mm. it's not planned, it's not scripted, it's not written yeah. and people sometimes like that more because they're like, oh, my God, they're doing this right now. It's just coming out of their brain. And a lot of improvisers are people who started improv like Will Ferrell, Amy Poehler. Tina Fey, those kind of people kind of start in improv and then that kind of can lead you into acting and writing and all that kind of stuff. So, like, I'm I'm a bit of a fan of improv.
0: Yeah, well, then uh, I didn't know a lot about improv. Yeah. And then I got invited to come and do one of the yeah. shows with you guys and uh, I was quite, for people listening, it was well and truly out of my comfort zone. Yeah. I didn't know really what to expect. And um, I just turned up and, and said a few questions and then you guys just – ran with
1: it (laughs) yeah so you were a guest (laughs) on these shows that were called improv torrent and all it was was they were being live streamed on twitch which is like that big thing you can watch stuff online and the guest comes and like like a host will like ask you about some stories and you tell a story that's funny and great about your life or being a life girl and you were so funny and then all (laughs) the improvisers do is like we listen to you and then that kind of inspires scenes or like if you mentioned a dog at the beach, we might do a scene of like a a different dog or a different or whatever. Um and yeah, and you were so great. And you even like got a little bit in the improv and it was so fun and then we met again and I was like, you will never remember this, but I met you when I was still in school.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's when that's what you said. Yeah. You said oh I met you at school and then <laughs> that, came, that story came out and then, yeah, suddenly we're doing uh, this show as well. Oh, my God. Was, we're going
1: to be friends forever, huh? <laughs> it was, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> mate,
0: it was great. I really enjoyed it. It was something yeah. that um, I hadn't done before, which was which was really yeah. good. And and you guys were fantastic in, in how you just, replay, you know, just came yeah. up with stuff so quick. That's the part I suppose was amazing to me and, mm. on how quick you just – and you'd be going down one path. And someone else will jump in and take it totally to a a different different way, a different path. Yeah. And I found it – and it was quite funny as well. Yeah, it's supposed to
1: be funny. It's supposed to like people with quick wit and like having different ideas and just like going with the flow. You know, you have to both like have control and let go of having control. And I love it for like the collaborative nature of – you get to make other people look good and they make you look good and just like, oh, my God, it's so much fun. Yeah. I think it's really and, fun.
0: And I think you had the point before. There's no right and wrong either. Yeah, that's that's probably it. the Whereas when I first was going into to do it, I thought, yeah. oh, what if I stuff something yeah. up or stuff this up? But once it got going, I realised, well, it didn't really matter what you said no. because there's no right and wrong answers. That's
1: it. And yeah. I think that's what people like about it, kind of the freedom of it. Mm. And even if you do say something that bombs, you're, you're on to the next thing yeah. and it shouldn't. Be something that you like beat yourself up yeah, over yeah. you just keep moving on yeah. and so I'm glad that you like like that
0: no I loved it it was in very we're enjoyable we're gonna do it again my wife do another one <laughs> 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 so you, you've then gone to um stand-up comedy and you've done some fundraising uh as well so yeah for domestic violence yeah for the services
1: yeah so I was doing improv for a while and loving improv and um I also got through doing that to meet stand-ups, which felt like a whole different beast of people who were writing, writing things and going up and having thoughts and ideas and writing jokes. And I remember that being so scary. It's so Mm -hmm. funny because... I think people who come from the writing background and the prepared background mm. look at improv and they're like, there's nothing scarier to them than being up on stage with nothing. Yeah. But I was from the other way around of being like, oh, you have to prepare stuff? <laughs> and if it's bad, it, you've yeah. thought about it and yeah. it seems really embarrassing? No way. <laughs> but as I kind of kept going and performing, I thought, I feel like that is something I have to try. Yeah. And I think it also leads to its own opportunities because like, it's about like finding your own voice, I think. Yeah. So, eventually I tried doing stand-up and it was everything. I thought it would be terrifying, scary, um, horrible. But, like, I liked being on stage and I liked knowing... Someone said to me, like, when you're alone on stage, you you feel really high highs and really low lows because there's no one else but you. So, I just thought that was pretty exciting. And so, yeah, I haven't even been doing stand-up that long, maybe, like, two, three years. And as I've been doing it, There was coming like out of what I've been through and having a bit more maturity and absolutely having gone through therapy, which is, you know, sort of revolutionary, helped change my life. I started to think about like my dream for my future is obviously to be a comedian for the rest of my life and that be my job. But also my dream is to be someone who talks about what I've been through and hopefully like allow other people to feel less alone and to bring more awareness to it because... I think people are always shocked to know that yeah. about me. And, like, yeah. for someone who's so happy and silly and stupid, knowing like the horrible things I've been through, and I'm like, and that's a source of strength. And mm-hmm. so that's my dream. So, as I started doing stand up, I thought a dream I always had was to put on a stand up comedy show or some sort of comedy show that raises money for uh, domestic violence support services. And so, um, someone from the Full Stop Foundation got in touch with me. And they're like the fundraising arm of uh, Rape and Domestic Violence Australia. And they do just incredible work for people affected by not just domestic violence, but family and sexual violence. They have like helplines with like trained psychologists and like counselors ready all the time. And they do all this great work. And I thought about it like just because I'd come out of a DV situation, I still had no idea about what services are out there, Mm. how people are being helped, that all the ways you can help. And so by getting to know Alexia, she's like the fundraising person there, we got talking and I was like, let's do this show. And so I just did the first one. It was called I'm Brave and Beautiful. And I had all the funniest, best comedians I know coming to perform and all the ticket sales and like people making extra donations went to the Full Stop Foundation, which was very like, nourishing and so exciting to me and something I just want to keep doing and yeah. making it bigger and better. Yeah.
0: Well, that's really, really good. And, uh, so now you're, um, got your own show as well. You're yeah you're about to do. Yeah. So At,
1: um, Bondi a- festival, which I thought, yeah. how time <laughs> you got to bring the Bondi boys? They're yeah. going to come see this show. <laughs> we'll
0: bring all the life stars to come see the show. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. So I, it's called Sienna. It's the, yeah. the name of who I was for that year. And, um, I just wanted to like, yeah, it's a thing that I also want to do of tell my story in the form of like a show. It's kind of a one-woman show and it's meant to be funny like because that's the point of like, I think we can get into the idea of like putting victims in a box and that they're like sad people you have to feel sorry for forever and the point of the story is it's about the year that I was so hopeful and was like, this is the year I'm going to get it right. I'm yeah. going to be Sienna. Like, yeah, Conchetta's yeah. in the bin. Sienna's yeah. perfect and awesome. And I'm going to kiss boys. I'm going to get a yeah. job. I'm going to, like, wear funky clothes. Like, everything's going to be awesome, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't have a, a dad breathing down my neck anymore. Yeah. And clearly you just, like, can't decide that your yeah. life is just going to be perfect and you're not going to go through the ups and downs that everyone goes through. And so it's sort of, I think, a quite, like, hopeful story about how a young person is dealing with all this stuff by not really dealing with it and my therapist always says this thing to me which I think is so amazing of like I'm someone who and this could be true of a lot of people of who didn't let domestic violence define them but they define what domestic violence is and that's why it's about telling these unique stories and all that kind of stuff that we get to show what it is and that you can laugh and cry and it's like tragic and it's all part of these things. So I just hope by doing this like show that's both funny and like real and sad, like it just keeps the conversation going in like a different way yep. or whatever.
0: Well, that's like what I'm doing with the podcast is Yeah, getting out there, your story getting out there. There's so many people would, would relate to this yeah. so so much. And do you think um, it, it helps you as well? But you're doing – it's it's comedy but telling your story, mm. does that you think help you? Mentally as well?
1: I think so, for sure. There's something – I always think about this that for like 19 years of my life I kept this like big giant secret and sometimes I'm bad at keeping secrets but I really managed to keep that one on lock. I didn't really tell a single soul and that's just like such a funny thing to think about of just like what that's – like because it's like it permeates everything. Like if someone's like, why aren't you coming over to my sleepover? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm not – really sort of like a loud kind of thing. And it's like, there's so many reasons going underneath things like this. And so I think in the years that coming out of it, it wasn't like I immediately switched on. I was like, I know how to say what happened to me and know how to be funny about it. It's taken time. It's taken, I remember the first interview I did about it. I left feeling sick and feeling shame and feeling like I couldn't articulate what I meant Mm -hmm. and all these horrible things. And my amazing, like, counselor was like, what you're feeling is normal. You don't have to know exactly how to articulate it. Yeah. It takes time. And, of course, it's going to bring up all this stuff that you went through. And so it's just, I don't know, taking time of knowing myself. And I, I, I think it just gets better and better in being, like, now coming to a place where I'm open about it and can share it because that is what ultimately helps people yep. and that's with so many things like people coming out about the me too movement or everyone yep. sharing these stories the same with this podcast i just think it's an incredibly freeing and helpful thing to do that's the base of just say what happened to you and you have no idea how it yep. will inspire people or help people
0: yeah and I think it's a great message to, to for people to get out and start talking, even yeah. though it's hard to, to talk about it. Yeah. But like you said, you locked it away for so long. So long, So yeah. imagine if you still locked that away to today, yeah. you know, it, how that just causes your mental health. It's yeah. just crazy.
1: Totally. And so that's what I realised with Sienna of like that year. I also, even though I thought this will be the time I'm finally free and I was, I also was still holding a big secret. I didn't tell anyone that I've run away. I've sacrificed everything in my old life to be this, like, new person. And I'm trying to form these friendships and live in this new place where I know literally no one, but I'm still holding – I'm just, like, buried still, everything that happened to me. And when – this just happened recently, but when we left from Perth again, I didn't really – tell people because it was saying goodbye again and yeah. i felt like it had just been a year and i thought no one would really care and it was like too much for me to handle so i just left i like had a new facebook and a instagram and twitter and i just like didn't they just stopped being active yeah. and then like literally a couple weeks ago i got an instagram message from a girl that i used to know in perth as sienna when we like were in this like uni club together which was just an excuse to get drunk and yeah, meet yeah. people and she was the loveliest girl, name was Carla. And she added me. She added my Conchetta, like, Instagram. And I was like, oh, my God, hell, hello. And she's like, I have thought about you for so long. And I said, let's Zoom. Yeah. And so we got to Zoom each other. And it was mental. It's been, like, so many years. And she's now, like, pregnant and, like, married. And I, and so she was like, can I ask, like, what happened? I always thought about you. And I told her the story, which filled in all the blanks for oh. her because she said – When I knew you, she was like, I thought you'd be someone who I'd see for the rest of my uni, and then you just dropped off. And she said this thing that I thought was really beautiful. She was like, I never thought you were being a bitch. I never thought you just stopped She was like, I thought something has happened and it's not the right time for me to know. And it just like made me cry that I was like, I've left people there who just have no idea what, they could think I had a coma, like who knows what they thought happened to me. Just dropped off the end of the world. Just dropped off again. I dropped off my life for 20 years and then dropped off this other year. And it like has repercussions and so to talk to her again and for her to understand what was going on for me, she was like, I remember feeling like you were a little bit cagey, like your story wasn't didn't know where you didn't really talk about your family and I didn't want to push and I just thought like that was so amazing to get to be like wow what's on the other side of what did it look like so yeah it's that's true I held the secret for so long and now I don't want to anymore and also like you said it it truly like has an impact I think by just being open about it Yeah. yeah yeah
0: So with the uh, the the coming up at the Bondi Festival, Mm -hmm. uh, tell when's that on and Um, the dates, and if people want to go down. Oh my God, good. Um,
1: it's a hundred million dollar ticket. Um, no, no, (laughs) it's July second and July third. Well,
0: I'll be there, so that's a million (laughs) dollars. Oh yeah, and then
1: the photo of you and me—that's also another million dollars we're going to clear out. Um, yeah, it's two nights at Bondi Festival. July 2nd and 3rd uh, yeah, and you can just go to the Bondi Festival yeah. website to book tickets and yeah it's just this, the story of that show it's still the beginning stages of me telling this story but um, yeah it's something I'm going to keep doing and finessing And and yeah hopefully you come and you like it.
0: No, I will. I'll definitely uh, come and have a have a look. Oh, and, you got. To. You'll be in the
1: story. I yeah. will somehow <laughs> weave in that Hoppers in the story, and <laughs> might get you to come up and do improv yeah. to finish it. Finish up.
0: Yeah, that'd, that'd be good. That'd be good. <laughs> anyway, that's. Um, Mate, it's great, uh, Conchetta, to have you in and, and tell your story and it's great to open up as well and yeah and, and get that out there and, and I've seen you in action in and you are a great comedian and very, very funny. So <laughs> thank I you. can um I can back that up and uh thank you so yeah, much. We'll, uh we'll all catch up down yeah, there. Yeah, we'll and, see each, and, each other in
1: another on. ten years. We'll keep it going. <laughs> and I wanna thank you for hearing about the work you do for domestic violence and yeah. awareness and doing this pod. Like, thank you. Like yeah. it does a lot and it means a lot and even for someone to not have gone through it but to have that empathy, yeah, yeah. that's something that's truly inspiring and, yeah. like, changes lives. So thank you. No,
0: nah, it's a pleasure. And uh, anyone that on my Instagram, I've got a couple of videos about the, the domestic violence and talking about it. Mm-hmm. And so if anyone wants to have a look at that and uh, it'll uh, see where we're all going. And, yeah. Yeah, no, nah, but it's great having you in for a chat.
1: Thanks, Robbo. Thanks, Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks, Conchetta sharing your story. Domestic violence is something we all need to be open about so we can stop this happening in future generations. Next up, Beach Banner with Whippet. G'day Whippet. G'day mate, how are we? Good. Just, um, You've been at the lifeguard now for a fair few years so there must be a main influential moment that you dealt with over the years you can think of?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, every season we come across so many big things that happen. But for me, the the biggest thing that's been a part of my career that I've never forgotten was my first resus, uh, the young Japanese guy, 23 years old. And, and we were actually down there doing a photo shoot with like six lifeguards sort of outside of work, and which was cool, lucky because he had a lot of people there to be able to assist and work on him. But yeah, he dropped dead. 200 metres up the beach and we got a call and we ran up and that was my first experience of a major first aid, mm-hmm. let alone a recess. And, uh, yeah, I, it definitely shocked me. Um, I was very lucky that there was some very experienced people like yourself, Corey Adams, um, a few of the other boys that knew what they were doing cause I kind of froze, which I always still feel bad about is that I didn't know I kind of shit myself when I got there and I didn't probably do enough that day. Lucky he had a lot of other hands that were more capable on him, but mm-hmm. For me, that was the biggest learning curve I've had in, as, as a lifeguard. And yeah, to be a part of that, which was ended up being a successful resus and we went and visited him in hospital and yeah, it was a very was sort of a life-changing moment in terms of how serious the job is for me and how also how good it feels when you get someone back and it's something that you never want to experience, but I've been lucky enough to you know, I've done about a dozen recesses now in my yeah. career down there and and most of them have been successful so yeah it's a it's an amazing feeling bringing someone back to life and I think for me that's probably the biggest influential moment of my lifeguarding career was was when that first one happened and I learned more out of that one than probably the other mm. you know 10 or 11 that I've done just because I learned how to stay calm well I didn't at the time but looking back, it taught me what you boys did and that was stay calm and work through the processes of how we're trained. And um yeah, and if you do all that right, the, the chances of a good outcome are, are pretty high.
0: Yeah. Um, even to today, that one was probably one of the most perfect ones I've actually been involved with as well, because everyone knew their role. Must've, um,
2: have, must've have been that radio talk I did, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Just communicating to the tower.
0: Yeah, that yeah. was a perfect radio course. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> no, I, I would agree with you there. Like, you know, the experience in the hands that were doing the CPR the compressions and the, the bag mask and defib and all that sort of mm. stuff was second to none. Like, yeah, I, I don't think you could get a better – at that time mm. with the lifeguard service that we had, I don't think you could get a yeah. better group of guys working on him. So, yeah, he was a very lucky young guy and, you know, I was only – he was my age pretty much at the time, 22 or 23. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, to see him dead one minute, alive the next and then be able to go back and – you know, fix the problem in his, that he had a heart condition, and and then to be able to live a nice, healthy life and happy with his family and stuff again. It's a big, big moment, I guess. And I mean, out of all
0: the ones I've done, it's very rare you see him actually wake up and start talking again. Yeah. Whereas he just woke up, and even I remember asking the question, "Do you know where you are?" And he said, "Bondi Beach." Yeah. So, as and, you said, someone's dead and funny of five, six minutes ago. Yeah.
2: It, it's a, that's the, probably the most surreal thing for me. Like. When someone's dead and you're doing compressions and you're doing going through the motions, you're not getting anything back. Mm. You're just doing it to keep them yeah. alive, yeah. even if they're still unconscious. You're still mm. keeping the blood pumping and all that. And yeah, I've had sort of him and, and one other guy, Timmy Pearson, where, where yeah. they were, Timmy was dead for 20 minutes, yeah. 20, 30 minutes. And we kept working on him, working on him. And then out of nowhere, he just went <gasps> and took a big breath and yeah. looked at me. And I just remember looking straight into his eyes. And I've known Timmy for my whole life almost, yeah. you know, 30 years. And- That was probably the most emotional one I've done. Mm. But you know, the same as as we're going back to that first one, to hear them then say where they are Mm. and be able to kind of talk to you and communicate to you is the weirdest feeling, and it's it's very surreal. Yeah.
0: Well, tell us a bit about um, Tim Pearson's one because we do a lot of rescues, a lot of rescues, but we don't always know the person. So just. Give us a feeling on, you know, when we do know someone, how tough that is.
2: Yeah, I think the fact that we don't know 90% of our resources or at least our Mm -hmm. patients that we rescue is a good thing. Yeah, we got a call, like, we could see guys waving on the beach and I jumped in a buggy and drove down sort of to about second or third ramp and luckily for Timmy, he was surfing in a competition and he was on a wave and he said – I've spoken to him numerous times since and he uh, he said he just remembers being on the wave – and then just blacking out, and there was a couple of German guys that found him face down in the water. Lucky he'd caught the waiver quite far away in, so they pulled him in, but he was dead, and we started working on him, and myself and Brad Mallion, and I think Bacon was there, and a few others that knew Tim quite well. So it was a really emotional kind of recess, because on one hand you try and do your best to save someone, but on the other hand you're thinking there's a chance I'm going to lose a mate Mm. here, so that was very... Um I remember screaming at him and calling his name out with Brad and that was a, a different feeling and that and I think that's you know, we tried in every recess you're trying anything you can do to get him back and thirty minutes or twenty five minutes mm. I remember that one went for and you know, we were exhausted, but we're never gonna give up. And next thing he just opened his eyes and gasped for air and was like and I was like, Holy shit. Yeah. Hang on, we're getting him back here and we kept working and speaking to him later he said I remember like it was literally, you know, you know, people say they see the light and the get smaller and smaller. Yeah. His he said his was the opposite. Right. And he saw like a light and then it kind of opened up, opened up and he said, And then the only thing I could recognise at the was like a your face, like a dinner plate, sort right. of in the light, yeah. and he said, and then he sort of said that he had a feeling like I can't die in front of the boys, blah, blah, blah. So that was good. And now he's back surfing. I see him all the time, walking around, you know, the local area and surfing every week I see him. So it's a, that's probably, for me, the best, the most satisfying one I've done because you're still seeing the, the efforts of all the boys, you know, yeah. 15 and, years later.
0: And that's, yeah, about 15 years ago. So Yeah, it'd yeah, be good 10 yeah. years, yeah. And it, I mean, and it's great. I see him wandering around as well. And you see him with his family, and his kids, and, you know, you think, well, they wouldn't have had that if yeah. it wasn't from for you guys doing what you did and getting back. Yeah,
2: and I think for any lifeguard around the country or anywhere, Around the world, that's done a resus and, and brought someone back. That's what you can take out of it. They're never going to be perfect, and but if you get someone back, you're giving a family someone mm. that they can they would have lost otherwise. So it's a moment to sort of reflect and cherish on on the fact that you've been able to give a family a li- a, yeah. a member back, and and now they can enjoy the rest mm. of their lives. Hundred percent. Thanks, Whippet, for uh, coming in, telling the story. No uh, worries, mate.
0: Any time. It's always great having Whippet in the Beach Shack. Up next, I answer letters from the fans. This letter's from Gary, and he's from Queensland. When did you first start using defibrillators at Bondi? Well, it goes back a long way. I remember the uh, these big orange boxes turned up one day, and we uh, got trained in, in defibrillators, and it was back in 1997. So it's going back a long time now that defibrillators uh, came around but it's only really the last probably five years that a lot of places have taken off with defibrillators like golf courses, um, RSL clubs, bowling clubs. So it's something that's only recently come in so people haven't realised that defibrillators have been around that long and really uh, have helped us defibrillators a lot because prior to that we didn't have a big success rate um, with resuscitation but since the defibs have come in We've uh, nearly got 100% uh, success rate. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flag.